You know, that song begins by saying things that we thought were dead are breathing new life again. And I think we are in a season in which new life is being breathed into so many things and we're experiencing new life. And I'm really excited about that. I'm, I'm also really excited that there's people in the room to talk to. Uh, this is, this is uh, every week it's just fun. I, I love it. Um, Alex Lesler last week, it was just so funny because literally every time he's been on to preach in the last year, something has come up and we end up with like a snow day or something or a pandemic, anything like that. But, um, but I'm also grateful in this season that our community has expanded digitally, not just on our continent. Um, by the way, I get emails from folks across the country every week that are saying, hey, thank you so much for being online and we're participating in what you guys are doing. Um, but not only that, and I think I've mentioned this before, but I'll mention it again. Um, I'm really grateful for those that are joining, whether tonight or on Sunday, um, that are joining beyond the shores of our nation, that are joining us from international places and joining us in other languages. And I'm just incredibly grateful for what God is doing in this season. In fact, I have, I've had a moment, a couple of moments this week when I've been overwhelmed um, just by what God is doing beyond our, our borders through our church. And um, I'm just really grateful that in the middle of a season where things seem so strange, God is just absolutely moving and breathing new life in so many ways. So I'm so grateful for, for everything that's happening right now. But um, if, if you've been with us, then you know that we're in a study in an Old Testament book called Leviticus. So if you have your Bible, I'd like you to turn to that book right now. Um, the book of Leviticus is a very unique book. Um, most people rarely read Leviticus slowly. If anyone ever says they've read Leviticus, they usually write it really fast. Or if they're listening to it, they put it on hyperspeed because they want to get through it as fast as they can. And, and the truth is most churches really talk about this. Uh, most pastors won't preach on it and most churches don't talk about it. But I believe it's a really important series for our faith. And I'm going to mention this every week because I know that some of you are just joining us for the first time in this series. But it's, it's important, um, first of all, because in reading Leviticus, you see that the Bible is one beautiful story that strings together. The Bible is not some loose connected uh, collection of, of stories and poems and histories and, and all sorts of things. But what you see is that the Bible is one seamless story and you discover in this story that there is a God who is unlike other gods who is shaping people to be unlike other people. That's really what we begin to see in this. And Leviticus makes this really clear, and you're going to see this more as the weeks pass on, the more we get through this series. Um, but secondly, I really think that, um, that it's important for our faith because studying a book like Leviticus resolves a tension that exists for us. Um, it, exists, it, it resolves a tension that I think presents problems to our faith. Um, there are people who struggle with the Bible and they struggle consequently with Jesus and having faith in Jesus because of things they read about in the Bible and specifically things we read about in the book of Leviticus. It is so strange and it is so off the wall. It is so disconnected from our current cultural context that it will leave you scratching your head saying, well, I, I don't really understand what's going on here. And when there's something that's that confusing in the Bible or something that's that off-putting, we have this... We have a short-term ability to sort of go, okay, I'm going to park that off to the side and maybe come back to that later because I know I want to follow Jesus, but I don't know about this. But that only lasts so long. Eventually you go, I don't get this. I don't know what's happening here. And if this is in the Bible, then how can I trust these other things that are in the Bible? And so I truly be believe for so many people, um, we're resolving what could be a potential crisis of faith by answering the question, can I trust the Bible? When we make sense of something like the book of Leviticus and we see what's really happening, then the Bible comes 
comes to life. And, and there's a genuine faith that is birthed in this moment. And, and Jesus, those barriers that keep us from truly trusting and following Jesus, I believe those barriers get removed. So that's why we're doing this series. So just some historical context for this so we don't forget this. When we open up the Bible to the book of Leviticus, the people of Israel are camped at the foot of Mount Sinai. Uh, Moses has come down from the mountain with the Ten Commandments, and God is instructing the people who have been just, they've just been liberated from hundreds of years of living in slavery in Egypt. Um, they are a unique people by name and by birth, but they have lost any sense of their unique identity. It's important for us to know when we start Leviticus that they've lived in a culture with customs and practices and values and behaviors and all of those things have rubbed off on them and those things have defined their identity. They are essentially ancient Egyptian in practice even though they are called the people of Israel in name. I need you to kind of wrap your brain around that. That's where we're sitting with them. So they're carrying with them habits around food and behaviors, even mythologies about God. And God is saying, I am going to create a new people who understand who they are and who understand who I am. And that's what the book of Leviticus is beginning to do. So here at the base of Mount Sinai, Moses has come down from the mountain and God is instructing him. He's instructing Moses to tell the priests and the people of Israel, I want you to understand all of these things concerning sacrifices and worship and priesthood and ceremonial cleanliness and feasts and all of these others. He's, he's even going to get into some medical stuff later in the book. And the central idea through all of these practices is that God is saying, this is who I am. And, this, and he's teaching them, this is how you live. This is how you live with me. And this is how you live with others. That's what he's showing them. That is the central idea of the book of Leviticus. I want you to discover who I am. And I want you to learn how to live with me. And I want you to learn how to live with others. And because of this, because um, during this period in human history, um, human beings utilized sacrifice to connect with their gods. Uh, in other words, that was the language that people were using. God says, if I'm going to communicate with you, I'm going to do this through the language of sacrifice. This is who I am. And he does it through all of these sacrifices. So Leviticus opens up with five distinct sacrifices that are being uh, described to us. Uh, chapter one is the burnt offering. Chapter two is the grain offering. Chapter three is the peace offering. Alex spoke about that last week. Then you come to chapters four and five, and now we have the guilt offering and the sin offering, and those two together are what we're going to look at tonight. And, and, and here's, here's what's ironic. Um, I don't think most people sit around saying, can we just spend an evening talking about guilt and sin? <laughs> but when you see what's woven into these two offerings and what it reveals about God and us and guilt and sin you're going to see some things in, in a brand new way that are going to be liberating for you. So I want us to dive in. Uh, Leviticus chapter 4, if you've already turned there, you can flip over to chapter 4. And I want to begin by reading in verse 1. It says this, And the Lord spoke to Moses saying, Speak to the people of Israel, saying, If anyone sins unintentionally in any of the Lord's commandments about things not to be done, and does any one of them, and I'm going to pause here. I want you to pick up on something. Notice he says, if anyone sins unintentionally. 
Now, unintentional, we know what this word means, right? We know that this word means you didn't mean to do it. Unintentional means you weren't planning on things going this way. Unintentional means you messed up. You made a mistake. You did something, as we might say in our culture, on accident. It was an accident. I didn't mean for this to happen. The word slipped out. That thing happened. Whatever took place. He uses this word, and then he applies that word to the word sin, So there's an idea being presented here that there are things that God wants us to do and things God wants us not to do. I'll talk more about that later. And sin, and those things we call sin when when that happens, um, sin is when we don't do what we were supposed to do or we do what we weren't supposed to do. Does that make sense? That's what's being presented here. And there are things when the intentions of our heart are good, but we still sin. Can anyone other than me relate to this? Right? I mean, how many of you have ever had really good intentions and you said, I, today's going to be a good day. I'm going to treat people really well. I'm not going to honk at any drivers. I'm not going to, you know, I'm going to have a really great day. And then things went horribly wrong. Right? Like, you did wrong when you meant to do right. Has that ever happened to you? Where maybe you went to say something to somebody and you thought, this is going to be a good conversation. And about four hours later, you're like, why did I ever open my mouth? Right? That happens. All of us have had that happen. How many of us, think about this, those of us that have chosen to follow Jesus, how many of us, we made a decision to follow Jesus and we set out on this pathway of following him and yet somehow along the way we have said things and we have done things, we've even believed things, we've acted ways that are completely incongruent with the way of Jesus and we look and go, what am I doing? How did I get here? In fact, I love this. I love what Paul writes in Romans chapter 7 because he he drops his guard and he shows us exactly how most of us feel. Listen to this in verse 15 of Romans 7. He says, for I do not understand my own actions. Amen, right? For I do not do what I want, but the very thing I hate. Now, if I do what I do not want, I agree with the law that it is good. So now it is no longer I who do it, but sin that dwells within me. For I know that nothing good dwells in me that is in my flesh. For I have the desire to do what is right, but not the ability to carry it out. For I do not do the good I want, but the evil I do not want is what I keep on doing. Isn't it good to hear an apostle say that? (laughs) Right? You just kind of nod your head and go, okay, this is a good thing. Now, what is he saying? He's saying, I have really good intentions, but you know what? Sometimes I unintentionally sin. I do things I shouldn't do. And isn't that true for all of us? We all sin. And it's not on purpose. Sometimes it's on purpose. (laughs) But a lot of times it's not on purpose. It's unintentional. It's that simple. Broken people do broken things. So when that happens, there are essentially three responses that we can have to this. And the first one is we just give up and we give in, right? I'm a broken person. I do broken things. We all sin. And so what's the big deal? Like we're, none of us are perfect. And so there's a part, of, a part of us, and sometimes some people make this decision. They say, what's the point of even trying? And so response number one is you just sort of give in to it and go, well, I'm just, I'm just a broken person. You know, I am who I am. You know, we can just kind of lean into that sort of thing. We can lean into sin. The problem is that even though sin is normative, it is not good for us. It is not normal. Just because something is prevalent doesn't mean it's good, right? So sin, 
disintegrates us over time. It disintegrates. It fragments us. We become fragmented people in the end when we lean into sin. That's what happens. And that's option number one. Oh, I'm a broken person. I guess I'll just live with it. Option number two is way more prevalent. Option number two is that we try to hide our sin or we try to hide our brokenness. Um, in fact, there's this weird little thing that happens when we sin. There's this thing that's, it's, it's, unless you have some sort of disorder, most of us, when we do something, um, there's an emotion that gets stirred up. There's a feeling that rises inside of us. And there are words that describe those feelings and those words are guilt and shame. You know what I'm talking about, right? Now, I realize there's differences between those two words, like those two words define two different feelings, but those words, when I say those words, you know exactly what I'm referring to. There are times when we do things and we just feel shame, we feel guilt. There's this heaviness. There's this pit that's in our stomach. There's this feeling that's in our gut. There's this anxiety that begins to rise. There's, there's the, the thoughts of what happens if, if certain people find out about this. And suddenly there's worry that begins to dominate our thinking. There's guilt and shame that rises inside of us when we do something that we didn't want to do or we don't do something that we wanted to do. And the typical response to this is that we hide we hide. It's sort of like this. Um, you know when somebody calls and they say, that, like, hey, I'm in your neighborhood. We just want to swing by. Can we stop by for a few minutes? And there's that moment where you don't even look around your house and you just go, that would be great. Come over. Then you hang up the phone. By the way, I just hung up a phone from 1980. Uh, you hang up the phone and, and you turn around and you look around your apartment or you look around your house and you suddenly see this like disaster area that you just told somebody they can drop by. What do you do in that moment? Sure, come on over. Then you turn around and it's Ah, oh, what are we going to do? You know, so you start running around, you pick up the clean laundry that's on the couch and you throw it in the dirty laundry pamper and you're kicking toys from your kids behind the couch. You probably kick the dog in the process, maybe yell at a few of your family members, hide the dishes in the closet. And there's this scramble, you know, you're shoving things and then the doorbell rings in the middle of it, sweat dripping off your bow, brow and you open the door and there's this moment where you go, hey, how are you guys? Good, how are you? Oh, everything's just normal. It's just a normal day in our house. Look how clean it is. It's so wonderful. We all have done this, right? We all know what this is like. Now, why do we do this? We do this because we have a tendency to hide. We hide. And we don't just do it with others when they're dropping by our house. We do it with God. You rewind to the Genesis account in the very beginning of the book of Genesis. After Adam and Eve sin for the first time, what's the next thing that they do? They hide. Do you think there's a reason that God starts the story of his, his relationship with humanity and right in the very beginning, there's a moment where we are hiding from him and he comes and finds us? Do you think there's a reason that the story begins with us hiding? Do you think that maybe tells a story about who we might be through the course of humanity? They hide. And they hide because they feel guilt and they feel shame. It is in our nature to hide, but it's also in our nature to sin. So all of this results in a crazy cycle of sin and then guilt and then shame. Sin, guilt, shame, hide. Sin, guilt, shame, 
hide. That's the cycle that begins to be produced in our lives. And the only thing we know to do in those moments is just try harder. But that just means that failure hurts that much more. That means that tomorrow, when I did the same thing tomorrow that I didn't want to do today, it just hurts that much more. So what do we do when we're in this cycle of shame and hiding and guilt and hiding? What do we do? This third option is available to us, and it's what's beautifully laid out in Leviticus chapter 4. Remember, God is talking about unintentional sin. We read verses 1 and 2. We get to verse 3, and it says this. Listen to what it describes. If it is the anointed priest who sins, as if a pastor would ever sin. Thus bringing guilt on the people, and he shall offer for the sin that he has committed a bull from the herd without blemish to the Lord for a sin offering. He shall bring the bull to the entrance of the tent of meeting before the Lord and lay his hand on the head of the bull and kill the bull before the Lord. Now jump down to verse 13. If the whole congregation of Israel sins unintentionally, and the thing is hidden from the eyes of the assembly, and they do any one of these things that by the Lord's commandments ought not to be done, and they realize their guilt, when the sin which they have done, what they have committed becomes known, the assembly shall offer a bull from the herd for a sin offering, and bring it in front of the tent of meeting, and the elders of the congregation shall lay their hands on the head of the bull before the Lord, and the bull shall be killed before the Lord. Now we jump to verse 22. When a leader sins doing unintentionally any one of all the things that by the commandments of the Lord his God ought not to be done and realizes his guilt or the sin which he has committed is made known to him, he shall bring as his offering a goat, a male without blemish, and shall lay his hand on the head of the goat and kill it in the place where they kill the burnt offering before the Lord. It is a sin offering. Stay with me for one more jump down to verse 27. If any one of the common people sins unintentionally in doing any one of the things that by the Lord's commandments ought not to be done, and realizes his guilt or the sin which he has committed is made known to him he shall bring for his offering a goat a female without blemish for his sin which he has committed and he shall lay his hand on the head of the sin offering and kill the sin offering in the place of the burnt offering so did you get this he says if it's a priest you do this if it's a congregation they do this. If it's a leader, he does this. If it's one of the common people, he or she, they do this. That's, they're going to do these things. And what is he telling us in this? There are amazing things through all of this, but what is all of this telling us? God has made provision for everyone. Everyone. It doesn't matter who you are, even the priest, even the leaders, the common people, anybody, the whole congregation. He makes, he makes accommodation for, provision for everyone. Why? Because everyone sins. Everyone sins. Even the priest sins, right? Which means this. If everybody sins, we don't have to to hide. We don't have to hide. Do you realize how liberating and revolutionary this is, especially in the world of church? How freeing this is? You don't have to hide. Talk about a culture shift. 
Imagine what this would be like. This is so beautiful and freeing. I just want you to see this, and I want you to imagine this. I want you to imagine if you're anyone during this time period, and you mess up, and we all mess up. We've all agreed on that. You mess up. There's something that you do. You go get your goat. And I want you to just imagine this. You get your goat, and you walk your goat through the village. And there's nobody in your village that goes, what's Brad doing walking his goat? Right? They know why you're walking the goat. Because they walked the goat two days before. <laughs> they did the exact same thing. And while you were washing dishes at your kitchen window, you saw your neighbor putting the goat on a leash and walking it down to the temple. And you went, okay, I see you. I'll be there tomorrow. <laughs> That's, they know exactly what you're doing. When you sit in this for just a moment, do you realize how liberating and revolutionary God is being in this moment? Instead of, we all mess up, so deal with it. Instead of, we all mess up, just hide it. Now we have an entirely new option being presented to us. We all mess up. We're all broken. But God has made provision for this. He's made provision. And even in that provision, we are looking at each other. And it's actually being pointed out like, yep, I'm like you and you're like me. And we are all broken people. And the biggest, most powerful takeaway from all of this is that now there is no hiding. There's no hiding. Can you imagine how freeing and liberating it would be to live in a community of humble transparency like this one? Imagine a community of people who, who live with this kind of vulnerability, this kind of transparency. Imagine if you could just see the goat being walked today, right? There goes Brad with his goat. Right, there he goes, walking his goat. There goes Jamie with her goat, walking her goat, just like everybody else. Can you imagine this? It just frees us, liberates us. All the white knuckling, all the struggling, all the fighting, all the pretending, all the, if anybody knew what I really thought, if anybody knew what I really did, if anyone saw my past, all of that stuff, it just, it evaporates. Because we live in a culture like this. I think this brings tremendous clarity to the Christian life today. There's a narrative that's been told, a story that has been spun, that is an untrue story about what it means to be a Christian and Christianity. It's a false narrative. And it's been told and it's incredibly destructive. It's a narrative that says that Christianity is about avoiding sin or managing your sin. It's a faith that is built on this foundation of what we don't do. Have you ever known anybody that like, when you talk to them about their faith, they're like, man, tell me why you're a Christian. Well, I'm a Christian, and they tell you a few things, and then they go, and the big thing is, I just don't do this, and I don't do that, and I don't hang out with these people, and I don't go to those kinds of places, and I don't, and I don't, and I don't, and I don't, and they give you all the don'ts. I'm not saying that there aren't some destructive, disintegrating habits that, that shouldn't be stopped. Those things should be stopped. But what I'm saying is that if the Christian life is built on avoiding sin, then when you sin, and remember, you will sin, your first reaction in a culture like that is going to be to hide. Well, nobody can know who I truly am. 
And so your first response is to hide, if that's what Christianity is about. And then and, and, and once you start hiding, you enter into a community of guilt, a community of shame, a community of judgment even. And that community, a community where people are hiding and, and operating in guilt and shame and judgment is the opposite of what God is creating at the base of Mount Sinai with these primitive people. At some point you have to stop and say, who's more primitive, us or them? See, the Christian life is about loving God and loving people. It is not about sin management. Which is why the focus of this Christian life is you and I accepting. This is why the centerpiece of the Christian life is you and I accepting the provision that has been made for us and entering into a relationship with Jesus, accepting his forgiveness and living transformed lives because of that. That's the focus of Christianity. Do you see the difference between those two things? Are you with me on this? Do you see the difference, the radical difference? Somebody... See this? Thank you. Yes. One is based on your ability. The other is based on God's ability. One creates a cycle of guilt and shame. The other creates a cycle of grace and peace. Which really leads us to chapter five, the guilt offering. Um, we say, okay, great. Now I'm good with God. But what about those times um, the guilt I feel is because of something I did not against God, but against something I did um, to somebody else? What about those times? Like, what if you see me walking the goat, but the reason I'm walking the goat is something that I did to you? Now what? Because that's something else in community, right? Wait a second, I see you walking the goat, but man, you hurt me, right? I'm glad you asked this question. <laughs> if you look in the next chapter, chapter 5, if you go down to verse 14, it says this. The Lord spoke to Moses saying, if anyone commits a breach of faith and sins unintentionally in any of the holy things of the Lord, he shall bring to the Lord as his compensation a ram without blemish out of the flock, valued in silver shekels, according to the shekel of the sanctuary, for a guilt offering. He shall also make restitution for what he has done amiss in the holy thing and shall add a fifth to it and give it to the priest. And the priest shall make atonement for him with the ram of the guilt offering, and he shall be forgiven. Do you notice anything different about this sacrifice? On the surface, it looks like all the rest, right? You got, you got an animal, you got zero blemishes, you got the priest, everything looks really similar, except... I want you to notice something. For the first time, there's a monetary value tied to the sacrifice. This bull is valued in silver shekels. And then it says, he shall also make restitution for what he has done. And that is done by taking a fifth of the value of the bull and adding that in a monetary value and giving that to the priest. In other words, you hear God saying, okay, this time I want you to bring a ram and your checkbook. If it's like 1995. Bring your debit card, your credit card, right? Why? What is going on here? Well, if you go to chapter 6, chapter 6 extrapolates what is happening here in chapter 5. Chapter 6, verse 1, it says, The Lord spoke to Moses, saying, If anyone sins and commits a breach of faith against the Lord by deceiving his neighbor in a matter of deposit or security, or through robbery, or if he's oppressed his neighbor, or has found something lost and lied about it, swearing falsely, in any of all these things that people do and sin thereby, if he sinned and has realized his guilt and will restore, 
restore what he took by robbery or what he got by oppression or the deposit that was committed to him or the lost thing that he found or anything by which he was sworn falsely, he shall restore it in full and shall add to it a fifth and give it to him to whom it belongs on the day he realizes his guilt. Do you see what's happening here? Restitution is being made. This is amazing and this is beautiful. See, see, God doesn't simply care about your community with him. He cares about your community with others. See, you, you can bring a goat, but you also need to bring your checkbook because you're not just making yourself right with God, you're also making yourself right with others. Years ago, I, uh, I, I bought a Makita toolkit. You know, I needed one tool, and there was one of those kits at Home Depot that offered you, like, two other tools you'd probably never use. And the price was low enough, you justify it so you can have more tools. That's something that American men do, right? And so, um, so I got this toolkit, and with it came this angle grinder. And the angle grinder sat in my toolbox literally for, like, two or three years, never touched the thing. I, I mean, I, I tried to dream of reasons to use it, and I couldn't come up with it. And, and then a friend of mine was working on a project, and he said, hey, do you have an angle grinder? And I said, yeah, I've got one that's, like, brand new. And I gave him the angle grinder, and he, and he used it for several months. In fact, I sort of forgot about the angle grinder. So some time went by, and then he and I were going on a run with another friend, and we met him at this little running shop downtown, and, and as we met there at this place to go for the run, the friend, the other guy that we were meeting there, and I'm with my friend who I've given the angle grinder to, the other friend comes out, and he goes, hey, I've got your angle grinder for you. And he holds it out, and it, it looks like somebody tied it to the back of a pickup and drug it behind it for like 47 miles and then lit it on fire. And I looked at it, and my friend who's receiving his angle grinder back gets a little awkward. And I said, is that my angle grinder? And he just kind of nodded his head like, yeah, that's, I, 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 I'm sorry, you know. And he said, I'll buy you a new one. I'll get you a new one. And, and, and I was like, I, I said, no, no, it's fine. It's fine. And in fact, we've had a good laugh about this a few times. And I'm hoping when he watches this sermon, he'll have another good laugh about it. But... But he said, are we good? And I go, yeah, we're good. But are we? <laughs> I mean, if he comes to me like in the next six months and says, hey, can I borrow your skill saw? Do you think I'm alone in my skill saw? See, here, here's what all this is getting at. There's a difference between forgiveness and restitution. You get that? There's a difference between forgiveness and restitution. There's a difference between forgiveness and restoration. Do you understand this? We know this very practically. I mean, let's get personal for just a moment if we can. My guess is that every one of us in the room right now, every one of us watching online right now, we have been hurt by somebody. Not, not little petty stuff like when someone beat up a tool. I'm talking about real pain. I'm talking about real hurt. I'm talking about uh, there's a wound. I'm talking about someplace right now we could have a conversation and there's a scar that we would feel when we start getting around that person or that moment. And it's because of something that somebody did. It's because of something that somebody said. It's because of something that somebody took. It's because of something that somebody ruined. And if you're anything like me, you have probably found a way to forgive them. But you also haven't forgotten, right? That old saying, forgive and forget, I don't know who made that up, but it's not true. We remember. You can forgive and still remember. 
In fact, think about it this way. What happens if that person, what happens when they do it again? Because sometimes they have, and some of us have those experiences where there's somebody who's hurt us, and then they've hurt us again, and then they've hurt us again. What happens every time they hurt us? What, what happens if it's twice, three times, four times? You can still offer forgiveness without restoration. That's possible. But eventually, the relationship changes. Eventually, there are boundaries that you begin to put up, whether you do it consciously or unconsciously. If somebody keeps hurting you, eventually you go, you know what? I'm sorry, you're not going to borrow my tools anymore. I'm sorry, you're not going to have access to this part of my life. I'm sorry, you're not going to have access to this part of my emotions, this, this part of my heart. You're not going to have access to this space in my brain. Eventually, we put up barriers. You can forgive somebody and put up barriers. It's possible, but it isn't ideal. It isn't ideal that we all just keep building barriers around each other because we've all hurt each other. So how does restoration happen? How does restitution happen? The guilt offering, as much as it's about restoration and restoration with others, it is also about restoration and restitution with God, which, by the way, is completely reinforced by Jesus in Matthew chapter 5. I want you to just look at this. Listen, listen to this. Jesus says, so if you're offering your gift at the altar and there remember that your brother has something against you, leave your gift there before the altar and go. First be reconciled to your brother and then come and offer your gift. Truly I say to you, you will never get out until you have paid that last penny. You realize that Jesus in Matthew 5 is talking about the guilt offering. And in this moment, what Jesus is doing when he says, if you're worshiping God, you're down here in this moment and you're offering this guilt offering and suddenly you realize, I owe Dan money. Or I hurt him or I wounded him. The moment you realize that, you know what you do? Jesus says you walk away from sacrificing and making things right with God and you go take care of that first. Then you can come back. God's patient enough, but he values this enough that he says, go, get away from here. Go take care of this. And in this moment, Jesus elevates our reconciliation with others. If you've wounded someone, if you've hurt someone, if you've done damage, go make it right. Notice what he's not saying. He's not saying, go demand that they'd make restitution with you. If somebody's hurt you, if somebody's wounded you, and you're at the altar and you remember it, send them a nasty email and remind them of what they've done. He doesn't say that. He actually reverses it and he says, the onus is on you if you've wounded somebody, if you've hurt someone. You go to them. You offer restitution. You make the first move. Why? He knows something about me and you. He knows, when Jesus says this, he knows that your relationship with God, and I'm just going to tell you after years, decades of pastoral ministry, I'm just going to tell you I've seen this played out over and over again. Your relationship with God and your relationship with people are far more integrated and intertwined than you ever imagined. Jesus says, you want to be close with God? Go deal with your relationships. Go deal with the brokenness that you have with other people in your life. First, he says this, because how you treat people matters. 
in the kingdom of heaven. And secondly, when you make the first move, when it's you that leaves the altar and you go and say, I did this thing to you and you shouldn't have to come to me and tell me, when you do that, you identify more than you ever dreamed with the God who made the first move. Are you with me in this? He's calling us to follow in his way. By the way, um, this is why issues of justice and racial reconciliation in the church are important. I'm going to pause here, a little side note. This is why we don't look at our brothers and sisters who have been marginalized and simply say, okay, I see that happened in the past, but I wasn't a part of it. We're just going to move on and pretend like everything's good. This is why it matters. Remember back there in chapter 4 when it says, if the whole congregation, even if it was unintentional sinned, unintentionally sinned, if the whole congregation did that, they still need to stop and do something. Yep. That matters. That matters. There's this really um, beautiful, I'll close with this, beautiful and somewhat cryptic moment that we read about in John's biography of Jesus. Um, John chapter 19, uh, verse 30, the, the crucifixion of Jesus is, is at its climax. And we read these words. It says, when Jesus had received the sour wine, he said, it is finished. And he bowed his head and he gave up his spirit. The word translated it is finished, is one single Greek word, and it's the word tetelestai. If you've been around church, you've probably heard this, tetelestai. And it's one of the most beautiful words in the Greek language. Um, it carries with it several intertwined meanings, and most of them come from the language of the marketplace. Tetelestai means that something has been created in perfection. Tetelestai means that something has been delivered to its owner, and tetelestai means that something has been paid in Fool, the debt has been paid. Or another way you might say it is this restitution has been offered. Jesus did that for us to cover our sin and bury our shame and give us a way in which we might reconcile with each other. You know, um, provision has been made for all of us. But I don't know that we live in that. Um, you know, Jesus talks about his burden being light and his yoke being easier, his yoke being light and his burden being easy. And, but do you realize that, um, that that idea, when Jesus said that, that doesn't begin in that moment in human history. That's the heart of what God has wanted for every one of us from the very beginning. That's what we're seeing all the way back in Leviticus at the foot of Mount Sinai is this new people who are being formed by God. God had a dream for us. God had this dream and it was like, what if there was a community of people who were so covered by grace that they could live in this vulnerable transparency? What if, what, if, what if there was a people that experienced a grace that was so powerful, that covering was so dynamic, that would actually not just reshape how they lived before me and before each other, but with me and with each other? What if it was that powerful? That is God's dream for us. That's God's dream for you. That's God's dream for you. I don't know what you feel guilty about. 
I don't know what stirs up shame in your heart. I know you probably have guilt. I know you probably have shame. I know there probably are things that are there. I know for me, when I bring up guilt and shame, I can go back and there's a litany of stories that I can just pinpoint. Sometimes those memories, they play so fast and so vivid that you know what it tells me? I'm not sure I'm letting the grace of Jesus touch those things. I don't know what those things are for you, but I do know what God's dream is for those things. God's dream for you is that any sense of guilt and shame, any sense of need for hiding would be obliterated from your life. His dream is that you could walk the goat in front of us and us in front of you and we would all go, yep, me too. I'm broken too and I'm so grateful for the grace of Jesus. Are you with me in this? He wants you to hear to tell us die, to tell us die. Thanks for bringing your goat. The debt is paid. Would you stand with me? Before I offer the benediction, Kayla mentioned earlier the Lent devotional, which I started yesterday brilliantly written, really wonderful process. Um, I, I don't think she mentioned that it's free. We make those resources for you guys, so take them. Um, take them to family members, take them to friends that you think might want to focus on something specific during the season of Lent, and don't feel guilt or shame about being a day late. That's the snow's fault, so had to bring that one into this, right? So I want to encourage you to grab those and, and take one with you, but as you go tonight, May you be men and women who are liberated from shame, who are freed from guilt. May you have the courage to walk in vulnerability and transparency before the one who paid the debt and before all of us who received it just like you. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Love you guys so much. Thanks for being here tonight. And uh, feel free to hang out. Like I said, stop by the info booth out there, or the resource center, talk to those folks, talk to each other, connect with your friends. And uh, we will see you guys hopefully next Thursday. We'll be here. And so will you. Maybe bring someone with you. See you guys later.